This show is sponsored by IdealWorkspace.com, which promotes a healthier way of working through their adjustable standing desk. Check out their latest smart adjustable standing desk at Altizen.com. A-L-T-I-Z-E-N.com. Welcome to Analyze Asia, the podcast dedicated to dissect the pulse of business, technology, and media in Asia. In this episode, I speak to Chen Yuzhen, former product marketing manager of Uber China in a two-part conversation. In the first part, we discuss the digital experience in China and how they are distinctly different from the US. Hi, Chen Yu. Hi, Bernard. How are you? I'm good. How are you doing? I'm good. I'm glad we are um, able to have this conversation because we've known each other for almost two years since my first article. Yes, it's quite difficult to actually get this meeting happen, but finally we got it happen. And I'm talking to Chen Yuzhen, former product marketing manager of Uber China and currently a freelance writer and artist. And she had a lot of interesting things to talk about because she has been writing many articles and some of my audience have been propped up to me and say, hey, why don't you get this lady on the show? And just before we start, Chen Yu, where are you based in? Right now, I'm based in China. So I'm between US and China and I was just in the month and uh, writing my book and now I'm back in my hometown in a small city on the Yangtze River. Oh, that's a very nice place and I think it's probably one of the great sites in China to watch. And of course, to start off, we're going to have a really long discussion talking about China's digital experience with the mobile apps and also something that which you are previously involved in is Uber China and where the Uber China Mafia have gone. We will start off first by getting to know you better. How do you start your career? So I came to the US for high school and then I went on to study economics at Princeton and Oxford. After that, I started my career as a financial analyst at Morgan Stanley in New York. But I've always kept Silicon Valley dream to join a startup. And eventually, I painted the portraits of 15 entrepreneurs from Elon Musk to Sheryl Sandberg and displayed them at a Sequoia Capital Conference. There, I got recruited to join Whisper app, which is a anonymous social network back in 2013. And it was one of the hottest apps and the trend anonymity, the trend of anonymity was very popular. So I joined Whisper and got an opportunity to set up the entity in China for the following 14 months. So I worked closely with Tencent and built a small team in Shenzhen. Um, And that's where I had my first immersion in working in China and how I started writing more articles commenting about US and China and tech trends. And because of my articles about China and my work experience here, Uber recruited me to work on China-related marketing work. And I'm sure that's a pretty interesting experience working in Uber. But I guess because you have done in your career journey where you have been involved with a US startup and also in China as on behalf of Uber, what are the interesting career lessons learned? I think one of the lessons is to be relentlessly resourceful. For example, when I first came to Shenzhen to recruit a small team for Whisper app from scratch, I was tasked to to recruit the team. So I would go on Dribble to look for talented designers and I would guess their WeChat and Weibo IDs would contact them because Dribble ID is like really important to designers, just like WeChat and Weibo IDs are important to our identity. So I was successfully got in touch with a lot of top designers through that way and I really got immersed in the design community. So really is these experiences taught me to be a problem solver. Same with Uber is like figure things out. I think 
the second one is know your unique values that you can bring to the table. Because I am from China originally, although I got educated in the States and UK, and I always kind of think being reflective and see where I can add value to the company that I'm looking to join or I'm working for. So for example, like working on bringing US companies to China became one of my unique values I can bring. Third part is prioritization versus multitasking. When you are working on a startup project, you basically have a to-do list like when you wake up as long as when you go to bed. So I learned to prioritize and really know the few things that you really need to get done first and and the most important tasks. I think that's one of the lessons I learned as well. And also being also a responsible risk taker as well, right? Yes, be a responsible risk taker. I think it's like, I remember Ray Hoffman said, being an entrepreneur is like falling off a cliff and assemble an airplane on the right down. And I think when I left finance, a, more, a safer option to join a startup, there's a lot of risk. But I think being a responsible person, you'd think about like whether your talent can bring value to this startup, whether or not it's ultimately a big success and what things you can learn and you can contribute during the process. So since your experience after Uber and Whisper, what have you been up to these days? The focus of 2017 has been writing my first book, Knocking on 99 Doors, to be published in China in April. And it's based on the stories of living in different homes for 365 days via Airbnb. So I basically gave up my lease and lived in people's home for 365 days. And this book is about the people I met, the different types of homes encountered, and life wisdom I learned from my hosts. A lot of them are over 50. And I've also been writing more uh, commentary about US and China. I think the Uber China article is one of them. Lastly, I rented an art studio and I've been painting uh, pets and some commission artwork. So as a freelancer, I've, I've kept myself busy, but really thankful for the structure and discipline that I learned from my previous work. I think this must be a great experience to actually live across China with different homes without a lease. And I think that the way you think about things, it changes your perspective in life. And I think this is where we come to the main subject of the day. I want to break it up into two conversations because I think that the first few articles you wrote about the digital user experience of Chinese, whether it's mobile or web apps, are very, very different from the way how mobile apps or websites actually operate in US or the rest of the world. So I want to basically start off. My first question is, what are five observations on the Chinese internet sector that you see today that is different from the rest of the world. Thank you for the question. I think China is changing so fast and every half year when I come back, it's like a totally different decade. So one thing that is definitely makes China unique is China moves extremely fast. I say time passes in dog year here. So one year is like 10 years that has passed in China. For example, the whole bike sharing uh, became popular late last year and it just took off within a few months and become a national phenomenon and quickly expanded internationally. And Toutiao launched its own music short video community, uh, community app and within six months they acquired musically and become a global company so like the speed in china is just phenomenal and on top of that like 
I used to bring a lot of things from U.S. back to China because it's hard to buy like vitamins and like really good nuts and other electronics from the U.S. When this time I brought nuts and vitamins home, but I can literally buy them on Taobao and Alibaba and even in stores now. So just through people's daily life, you can observe how things are changing fast. Secondly, the trend for 2017 in China has four major parts. First one is high-speed railway, although it's not directly a digital experience, but it's highly related to digital workers' experience and how Chinese society is changing. In the past decade, China has spent a lot of money building up infrastructure. And in 2017, you can really see the fruits. My hometown used to be five or six hours away from Shanghai, and it's really a hustle to go, but now it's three hours train ride. So the metropolitan area of Shanghai has really expanded. Hangzhou, the hometown of Alibaba, is now only 50 minutes from Shanghai. So the whole satellite metropolitan area has really become, for Shanghai, has really expanded. And that brings more commute, more collaboration. And there is Wi-Fi on the high-speed railway as well. So it's extremely convenient. And the second one is mobile payment. So even in the most remote village, a street vendor, you can buy your breakfast from a street vendor. You don't need to bring a wallet um, to the street anymore in China. So everything is done over mobile. And especially in 2017, it's expanded to the third, fourth, and fifth tier cities. So everywhere. And the third one that we're probably going to talk a little bit more about today is bike sharing, like mobile and Ofo. Some people say that China is going back to our bike mode. Uh, so having ability to unlock a bike everywhere and ride around China is another trend. And the fourth one is e-commerce. So you click on a button and the food and products will appear at your door within 24 hours. And some housewives in China even consider remove their fridge because everything delivery is so efficient and fast. So those are four trends in China in 2017. The third part I want to point out is like China is far beyond copying in the West. Great innovation is happening everywhere. In the past, people always say that only copy to China. But in fact, maybe some trends or some ideas were started, were meant to be a copy of, say, Quora, and the China equivalent is Zhihu, or like Weibo was originally designed to be equivalent of Twitter, but it has to adapt to China local economy and China users' habits and expand it and become much more than what we know as a core. So we can't really take the face value. To give you an example, WeChat and Alipay are both Swiss Army Knife kind of apps. Everything you need is a tap or a scan away. I would order my taxi, pay for grocery, go Dutch with friends at a meal, top up my cell phone or pay for water utility or order a ferry ticket to Macau. Basically, you name it. Everything can, can be done over WeChat. That means like I don't need to bring a wallet, which I mentioned earlier. And on the hardware space, like DJI Zhong has become a global company and very, very popular from Hollywood to photographer enthusiasts. It's one of a global company, a new emerged global company that came out from China. So I say that Chinese consumers are really spoiled by the fast internet development and cheap labor because everything is so efficient. And uh, the fourth one is global expansion by merchant acquisition. So every Chinese company, whether it's 
Alibaba or Tencent, they all have a goal to become a global company, uh, not just satisfied being a dominant player in China, although we have over a billion people to have its own ecosystem. In 2017, we saw that a few Chinese companies have been taking action abroad. Total purchased Musical.ly and Flippogram completed their internationalization for their short video app. And DD bought Brazilian car hailing company. In 2016, DD acquired Uber China. So Chinese companies now have a lot of cash and they've trying to grow by one way is by buying international competitors and the other way uh, the other way is really penetrating to global markets like alipay has a branch in the u.s to enable chinese travelers or locals to pay for restaurants with alipay in california now they've enabled alipay in airports as well chinese companies are not only buying international competitors but also building up local presence and that's going to be a trend you're going to continue to see in 2018 and beyond is these Chinese domestic companies now building their brand, especially manufacturing companies like in suitcases. Like we used to buy Samsung Light, but now we have some really interesting domestic brands and they may even have interest in going global. The fifth observation is that China is the center of hardware innovation and production. So CES is still happening, the Consumer Electronics Show. Last year, over 1,200 companies out of 4,000 vendors are from China. And this year, one third of the vendors are from China and Shenzhen alone has 500 companies um, who are at CES. And I started to run into American PR companies that are handling uh, China hardware clients. So that's an interesting trend as well. And I think that according to my friend, Ben Berheron, who usually covers CES, it seems that the amount of international presence in CES actually have grown pretty big and mainly dominated by Chinese hardware manufacturers. I mean, it used to be only just Samsung taking a big move, but nowadays you have Huawei, you have DJI, you have all the other players entering this space. Interesting that you mentioned these five trends that's ongoing and we also seen some pushback from US, like particularly recently Alibaba failed to acquire MoneyGram because of trade reasons and of course the similar situation with Huawei and AT&T's deal fell apart I think in the last uh, few days ago. One thing I wanted to get a better understanding is I, I think you have seen the US culture and the Chinese culture. How is working and living in China differ from the US? To give you an example, I'm just looking at the working schedule. In China, the internet companies follow 996 schedule. Basically, it means 9 a.m. to 9 p.m., six days a week. So that's like 72 hours that you go to work. In China, people um, often have longer hours and fierce competition because China is so big and so always be hustling is not just a uber core value it's basically a basic survival um, rule in China if you think that the, if Black Rock City Desert of Burning Man is not inhabitable in China the startups and companies are always living in the desert growing out of the um, alkaline land because China has these like, huge conglomerates like Tencent and Alibaba and they can just copy your feature and your company will be like a little, literally a feature of their product. So startups are really hard to survive when you are having these big players. So I think that's a core difference is like the really tight working environment and constantly being facing competition in China. 
probably is much higher than in the U.S. So you have written an article about the 10 mobile apps in China that many should know. One interesting point I wanted to get from you is that you mentioned quite early in our conversation that just copying an app directly from the U.S. to China doesn't work anymore, right? That's also shaped the way how you think about why certain mobile apps in China are very unique. I just want to get a sense of your perspective on that and maybe you can talk about what is it like of all these mobile apps in China that are so unique that people should know in the US or even for the rest of the world, I mean the rest of Asia, when we talk about Southeast Asia and India, they also would be able to learn from. Copying a popular app directly to China does not work. Only when a validated need is combined with proper localization by the right team at the right timing. So I'll give you an example. Zhihu started as a copycat of Quora in 2011. It's a question-answer platform. It has since merged as a major lifestyle and Q&A platform where all the experts exist. Unlike that, Quora still remains as a Silicon Valley and tech-centric product. Zhihu is really a mainstream product in China, and people know that if they want to look for high-quality content in every domain area, they would go to Zhihu instead of Baidu. Because Baidu, you can like Google or you can go to Quora, right, in America. But in China, like you can go to Baidu to, to search for an answer. Or you go to Zhihu, you follow this expert and you will find the best answers. And I think that really goes back to the DNA of the founders. Because Zhihu's founders all come from media background. They've been in the media industry for over 10 years, or they are news reporters. And so they really understand how media works in China. And then that's how they spin Zhuhu from a pure copy of Quora to a more like lifestyle and people share their travel stories and travel hacks and like a lot of pictures, live streams, AMA, and like they even publish books and magazines. Like if you can publish with Zhuhu, it's actually a really good credibility. So I think that's just an example. And the other one I would say, the second one I want to mention is Xiaohongshu which is an e-commerce app. It started, it means like Little Red Book. It started as an e-commerce app to purchase overseas products, but it's different from like a pure product-based company where Xiaohongshu had its focus on community. So it's kind of like an Instagram type of community where people share their pro- the products they purchased from overseas and they write commentaries and they write about the pros and cons. And based on these discussions, they have a really high uh, retention community where uh, people enjoy sharing the products they bought. And then from there, they have a really successful e-commerce. But in 2017, uh, Xiaohongshu also started selling more domestic brands. And that's also a trend of 2017 is the Chinese domestic cosmetics and fashion and beauty brands have really been emerging along with like the suitcases, lights and all the home products are really emerging from China. It's going to be in my next article about the new age of consumerism has really arrived in China. And to give you more context, so China is traditionally known as being a country of manufacturing. We uh, were manufacturing like 
bags and clothing and all the different electronic parts for international brands. But the new trend in 2017 has been combining the traditional manufacturing capacity combined with the online marketing and user base from a big company like Xiaomi. Like Xiaomi's vision is becoming China's Muji for lifestyles. So they invest in every kind of home products from luggage to lights and everything that now you go to a Xiaomi offline store, you can buy luggage, you can buy headphones, you can buy lights, you can buy everything from, you can buy everything you need for your home. And these are made in China. And now people are actually really proud to use products that are made in China instead of just purely looking for foreign products. From your article, because you mentioned possibly the three most interesting examples, which is Zhihu, Xiaohongshu, and Xiaomi. And of course, Xiaomi is going IPO this year. We will be soon know whether they are going to be valued at whether the US 100 billion or 200 billion has been reported by the press. I am very keen to hear your perspective on WeChat. So everybody in China knows that WeChat is the most important social app in China. And also very little is known about the creator, Alan Zhang, from Tencent. One interesting thing that I know you have written is that you managed to distill some of the things that he had written into key product insights. So I want to just get some thoughts from you. What are the key product insights that you've learned from Alan Zhang in terms of thinking about products in China? Thank you for this question because really um, Alan is like one of the most mysterious men in China. He's the father of WeChat, but he rarely appeared in any interviews and uh, he is a very low-key person. So, But he is a product genius. And I think one of the lessons is on Simplify. That is more like a universal for product. Is He said, how many more features can be added until the product becomes garbage. And that the majority of so-called innovation just means complicating an existing problem. So he really trying to cut off features, cut off things that's unnecessary. One of the examples that really caught my attention is he said that the word successfully really bothers him. Like this message has been sent successfully. He said, every time when I receive a push that says action has been completed, successfully or this message has been sent successfully, I get paranoid by the word successfully. I told my team many times to remove this word, but still it appears. Today I made a command to permanently remove successfully from our product. Some say I'm too particular with the words to an extent of extreme. So Basically, he pays attention to the details such as one word that can be really redundant. If this message has been sent unsuccessfully, then you would want to change that. So this just shows how simplifying philosophy even goes to the structure of a sentence. And really, every word would matter in WeChat. So that's one thing with Simplify product. And the other interesting part is the way WeChat grow. Of course, it had a lot of QQ users. So QQ and WeChat are two social networking apps in China. And QQ is the first social product that everyone got on. And WeChat came out in 2011 from a different uh, unit. And initially, the QQ users became some of the early WeChat users. But when WeChat really grew virally, 
was through Shake to Add Friends feature. Uh, Bernard, I don't know if you have used this feature. Is I have used that feature when I'm in China, actually. <laughs> yeah, you you are in a room and you shake your phone, and then people pop up. You can add people even miles away. So it's it is like a drifting ball, right? You shake, and someone from like five uh, miles away would appear. That feature was actually shown to me in Singapore by a Chinese friend who I visit very often. Yeah, but that was a few years ago, right? Yeah, that was a few years ago, and and then when I went to China and I actually tried it, it's far more amplifying to use it. I think it's much more fun if you ever use it in China. Yeah, so it is because we have so many people in China. the The really interesting part to me is how Alan formulated the thoughts about Shake to Add Friends feature. So he used visualization. He visualized WeChat adding a friend while shaking. He said, "Imagine this: two trains pass by each other, and at the very moment of crossing path, he and she take out cell phones and wave, which activates the shake function, and then they have exchanged WeChat ID successfully." That's our ad right there. In 2011, he said the visualization of shaking feature, and later he made it happen. And I like how he would visualize the user scenario in such a simple way and make. The feature as simple and easy to use as that, and on top of the Shake feature, it has now some new applications. So you know Shazam, right? Like you identify a song you listen to at a bar, or like you hear some song and you want to figure out which musician is from. So now you can shake your phone when you hear music in China. And it will pop up the the name of the song, and you can share to your WeChat moment. That's a really interesting feature on top of adding friends. The other part is like because I worked in marketing, and growing user has always been one of the tasks of marketing manager. And I really enjoyed reading Alan's view on how to get more users on a social network. He said, "How do app users get friends on the network?" It has to be coming from the user's own hands. Any hack that imports contacts by bulk will generate little real result. That that remind me of a very common practice in marketing is called give get. It's referral marketing. So if I am a Airbnb user, I would share my code, and my friend would get like twenty five dollar for their first trip, and I would get a kickback of like twenty dollar. Empowering every user to be your evangelist. Has been one of the best features to grow users, and I think it's very clear from Alan's thoughts about like your users are best advocate to get more users on network. And they are like the nodes in a network, and the more nodes you have, like the more connections you be bring to the network. Yes, the last one is the role of a PM. He said mobile product should be user driven, not PM driven. The role of a product manager is to find. The eighty twenty sweet spot and activate it. This is interesting, right? He basically, from time to time, he put his own product insights into the WeChat moments. I think the most recent one he did was the WeChat mini programs. He actually visualized the mini programs in terms of how you will you scan a QR code, a particular function that is within that location will activate, and you can basically use your user experience. I think it's pretty difficult to hear from the person who actually created WeChat, given that he's been taking such a low profile. I only have one final question before we close and we get to the next part of our discussion. Is when you think about user experience from U.S. and China, China tends to be more holistic, meaning that you can put everything into one, like a super app like WeChat. Whereas in the U.S., if you look at Google, Facebook, 
they're very separate from each other and they're very, very distinct. Do you see the user experience from China would move towards that or maybe it's going the other way around? Because I also see the similarities of Japan and Korea adopting something very similar to what's happening in China where you have Line and Kakaotalk where they are the super apps as well. I think both trends are happening in China. On one hand, apps like Alipay and WeChat are like your your lifeline. It's like your address book and your bank account. So they want it to be comprehensive and they want you to be able to have access to everything you need within WeChat. But there's also like separate Jingdong apps. So actually, the other trend is the mini program is actually replacing apps. Like now to be an entrepreneur actually in China is a lower friction because you can build a mini program within WeChat ecosystem instead of like hiring an engineering team and build a whole product and then release in the iTunes store. So WeChat is like its own ecosystem. And Alipay, because it's the biggest head-to-head competitor with WeChat, and they also want to have your everything there. But on the other hand, if you look at Zhihu, right, it breaks into two apps. One is a main app, and the other one is called Zhihu Daily, which is like a pure news consumption app. And WeChat also has its own standalone WeChat reader, so you can read books in the WeChat standalone apps. So I think the trend is in both ways. Total has its own short video community, its own music community app, and it's news app. It's going in two directions and there's no right and wrong in which direction the apps will take. Yes, I think because in China, people are so used to the Swiss army knife model. If you want to reach billions of people, um, some people are still using the very basic smartphone. They may not be able to download so many apps, but WeChat will be a one-stop for everything or Alipay will be one-stop for everything. But at the same time, like people also enjoy the freedom of downloading more apps and using like for specific vertical functionalities. So you, many thanks for discussing the digital experience in China and how actually the typical Chinese users apps and some of these interesting apps and product insights that's coming from Alan John that you shared with my audience. We are going to take a break and we'll be coming back in part two where we're going to talk about Uber China Mafia. <laughs> 